On today's episode, Dave interviews Jonathan Pitts. Jonathan is the co-founder and executive director of the prestigious Chicago Improv Festival. He teaches at the Second City in Chicago and has performed and taught in Norway, England, and Canada. Jonathan is a contributing writer to the bestseller and improv almanac. I'm Ian Foley, and this is ADD Comedy. Well, I'm just, I'm not saying season five. I'm saying the whole thing. The whole thing. It's worth the, the journey. The whole thing. It's worth the journey. Yes. Um, I, you know Matt Jones? You know Matt Jones. Right? Yeah, it was, it, it was, it's always fun doing what we do to see people that you know in other shows. Larry Hankin. Right? I fucking love that Larry Hankin. Boy, it didn't take me, it took me 20 seconds to swear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, do you know Larry Hankin? Uh, I met him at the Second City 50th. Uh-huh. Uh, boy, is he a character. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of those guys from Second City in the committee during that time period. Right. Character with capital C's. Yeah. Um, did you have? I keep talking about him because just, he just so impressed me. Is Carl Gottlieb? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, but I did not have him as a teacher or anything during. No, 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 no. Carl no. Gottlieb. I don't think he taught. He okay. Carl. Carl's a committee guy. Ah. And uh, he wrote this movie called Jaws. And he wrote this movie called The Jerk. Mm, and he was yes. one of the, you've heard of these movies? Yeah, yeah. And he was one of the people that was like the founders of the, uh, the committee. And you go, what? How could you do what? How did you go from being this committed Marxist street performer to creating Jaws? Right. How did Unless that happen? Unless you had a metaphor in there about capitalism somehow <laughs> that we all missed. His... His story is phenomenal, but so many of our stories where you talk about, you know, uh, Matt Jones, uh, who, who is a badger in, um, uh, in Breaking, Breaking Bad, Bad. I, I interviewed him before I watched the show. And so it's like, ah, oh, he's just a guy. He's an improviser. He's a right, guy. Right, right. Fuck that show. What a show. Yeah. Yeah. And he's great in it. Like he's, all you got to do is say to anybody who's seen the show, you go badger and they go, yeah. Right. Like right. He's so nailed that character. Right. But yeah. all those people nailed that character. Did yes, you, they did. Did you watch? Um, did you ever watch Dexter? Yes. I thought I gave cast, up halfway through. The casting was abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't buy any of them. It felt like the casting was done by cookie cutter. Like this is what we already had in mind, and so they chose people that looked what they had in mind, as opposed to the chemistry that comes from how they relate and interact with each other. Right, right. It's, uh, it's the idea of, for me, it's the same idea as what the groundlings do. There I said it, which is get your who, who you're, what you're wearing out at the beginning of a scene and then put your scene out from underneath. You, you, you build your scene up from that. Right. Um, it, it, it's the same thing about, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do Hamlet and we're going to get the costumes and then we're going to uh, cast people who fit in the costumes. Right. And go, what? How does that, what? But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like to have all yeah. those things where to have, you have your structure before you have anything else. And I think it's really hard. I would think it would be really hard to cast people if you're saying it has to look like this. Um, who, and I feel like what's, that's what's so brilliant about what they do with The Wire. I never saw, I saw okay. the beginning of The Wire. Because they cast... Well, first off, most of the main actors are from Australia and Britain, mm -hmm. so they're not anybody from America. So you, could, they really wanted to purposely have a bunch of people there that you don't go, oh, look, there's that guy from right. that thing. There's that woman from that commercial. And so all these people, it's like watching a documentary. All these people come out of nowhere. And then by the time the show had been going on for a while, they were actually then casting 
Baltimore residents to play things, uh, play people within that. Right. And it just created such this dense, uh, dense community. Uh, you know, I, I like to say that really the star of that show is Baltimore. It's really about Baltimore. You, you go in with your Western mindset of the hero's journey following this one person. And then it just keeps opening up to know this is a story about an entire city. It out Nashville's Nashville. It goes beyond what Robert Altman does in having 12 lead characters. It's just almost more like a Charles, I mean, a, 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 a Dickens novel. You said Charles. Yeah, he, okay, I got, I got it. It was like Charles Coulson. It's like a Charles Coulson. Yeah, it was a Charles Coulson novel. I, I was in an airplane. Uh, and Charles Coulson was the, the, the Watergate person. Right. And he pled guilty. And he was in prison. He became a priest, a pastor. Yeah, because he, he found God in church. Exactly. And I was when I was flying here, I was sitting next to a woman who said, you know what you would love? You would love this book about seven, seven men who are mentors because people don't have enough mentors. Mm -hmm. And children, men, boys need to have mentors. And one of them was Charles Coulson. And I went, oh, you're a Christian. Okay. Okay. So everything you're going to say right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about later as in really, 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 really. Yeah. And, and going back, I'm just I'm so on my high horse. Ah, oh, today was a, quite a day. So I'm bringing in a lot of ire. Um, the the idea of religion is the same thing, I believe, as what we're talking about. So if you're fundamental within particular religion, you are going. Everything has to fit within this mm -hmm. st stricture. You know. I feel the same way about uh, the approaches of improvisation. Uh, I occasionally teach a workshop uh, called Eight Ways Up the Mountain. Okay. Because to me, there's like eight or nine major philosophies as how to improvise. Like you even mentioned the Growlings, which is all character-based. And to me, each one of these ways work, mm -hmm. but the main function of them is to get you up the mountain. Mm -hmm. When you're at the top of the mountain, the view's the same. Right. Now, to me, there are certain improvisers that have become transcendent. How they got there is their journey. Right. Like, you know, uh, I, I consider you... It's going to sound like I'm sucking up to you on the, your own podcast, but I consider you to be a transcendent improviser. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not it matters that you came from I.O. or Second City or Annoyance or some combination, that's what got you there. Right. You know, but it's the fact that you're up there at the top and, and now that you keep learning and keep adding things. But it's the people at the top. The view's the same. To me, the problems that happen in improvisation is the people that only make it up part way of the mountain mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they only see their segment of the mountain. And each mountain, kind of like that uh, parable about the eight blind men and the right. or the eight blind priests with the Buddha, the Buddhists the, or whatever, with the elephant, right. they all have a different chunk of it. Yeah. To me, every major philosophy of improvisation has an element of the truth to it. Right. I don't believe that any of them have the complete truth to it. No, and that's why I when I look at when I look at people who are uh, who are delites, delites, or what I'm going to say, and you go, you know what Del would like. Just it to be evolved or right. it to evolve. Yes. It, to keep going. Want, right. He keep wants evolving. to keep going. And where people go, you know, Dell would do this with that voice, that right. Dell voice. And you go, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I studied with Dell. You studied with Dell. And right. you go, Dell was always fucking with everything. He didn't stop at the side of the mountain. Right. He just kept going up. And once he got to the top of the mountain, he went to other mountains. Yes. He didn't even stay at that mountain and go, I'm here. No, because what is here, you know? Right. And the more I, the, and I've mentioned this before, but uh, what I've realized this year is the process is the product. The idea that yes. I'm sitting watching that show and mm -hmm. that show is people who are in process of their life. I'm not coming in to say what, the, I'm, I'm not going, I, I, it just started. Okay. That's the beginning. I cannot wait for it to get to the end. You right. go, I can't wait. 
I am going to be here right now. Anybody who can't wait to get to the end is already at the end. Yes. Yes. And I've, uh, uh, I know you incorporate a lot of theater into what you do. Mm -hmm. I incorporate a lot of theater, what I do. And one of the things I've been sharing with people is that I really believe improvisation and acting have come from the same plant, mm -hmm. but they've sprouted out in different roots. And I feel like the main focus of acting is a constant process of revealing. Mm -hmm. You reveal, because you know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You reveal, and you, these are the subtle hints, either acting or playwriting or directing or all the things that combine right. to reveal, to get us to the next moment, to get us to the next moment, because we know at the end, Hamlet is going to kill Polonius. Mm -hmm. How we get there, how that happens mm -hmm. is, but that's a constant process of revealing. Whereas to me, improvisation is a constant process of discovery. Right. It's what you and I are discovering, connecting with, and you don't know where it's going to go. Right. You can only tell where it's been, but that's only helping you in more discovery of this moment now. It gives you perspective on what this moment is, the past, yes. but it does not define the moment, nor does it define the next moment. And if you think you know where you are because of the last three discoveries, then you're going to miss out on what the next discovery is. Absolutely. I, I say, if you, if you think you know what the scene's about, you're not listening. At yes. that moment that you think what the scene's about, you're thinking what the scene's about, you're not in the middle of the scene. Right. Uh, that's really great. And, and so also what we're saying is, uh, because everything, I, man alive, I think it's truer of improvisation than it is of theater. I, I could be wrong. I don't care. Please tell me that I'm wrong or let's talk about it. But the idea of most of the lessons in improvisation are lessons in life. Yes. You know, where you, you where like yes. most of those things, everything that you said, if we want to go, uh, if we want to reverse every, reverse this thing and then put a Chiron up, if we were videotaping it, put a Chiron up saying life lesson and improv yes. lesson coming up or here. To me, theater is the study of humanity, but improvisation is the study of living. Right. In that moment, at that moment, yes. at that moment. And that's what you learn while doing improvisation. Whereas like theater, since you, again, you already know with theater, when you're no longer just doing rituals from some way, when you're doing something that's play-based and has a script, everyone knows the end. Right. So it's a study of humanity. Right. Maybe theater, like if we could go into certain societies or go back in time and see how rituals be, were being formed by certain tribes or certain cultures, we would see a different form of theater that isn't the study of humanity but a celebration of the cosmos in some capacity. But improvisation, I agree with you 100%, it is the study of living, and it's the discovery of living. I, what you said about the celebration, uh, I have so been, I've been so teaching that, uh, using that word so often, the idea of celebration, because I feel that so many people are looking at it saying, I have to do this, I've got to do this, I have to get to this point, I've got to get to this point, I have to notice this, I've got to notice this, as opposed to, I am here to celebrate that revelation that is going to come in this scene. I am here to celebrate that which you have just said that I did not know that you were going to say. So it's with John, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, John, Jonathan Lair, who wrote that book, Imagine, you know that right. book? Uh, that got pulled from the shelves because he made up a Bob Dylan quote. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, he, he fabricated Oops. Bob Dylan quote. Mm. And, and like Houghton Mifflin. Well, mathematically, Bob Dylan's written so many things, you could almost imagine that he might have said everything at but some point. But here's the thing. That's what they thought. <laughs> That's what I think he thought, like Bob Dylan. But everything, every time... Bob Dylan breathes in air. People are looking at the air that he breathes out. That's true. So they're looking at that. So it's so already cemented. Everything yeah. that he's done. And what happened was he had, he said something about, uh, I think it was something that Bob Dylan wasn't sure if one particular song was going to be a novel or a song. That's what he said at the beginning of this book, Jonathan Le 
imagine his name. Yes. Jonathan. One of the John, Jonathan Laird, Jonathan Lethan, Jonathan Laird. <laughs> There's so many Jonathans. So at the beginning of that book, he was talking about the idea of ideas, the idea of yeah. getting inspiration. Yeah. And he mentioned Dylan. So a, 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 a Dylan taunt, uh, which can't be a phrase, but it should be. Should be. And uh, a Dylan taunt was saying, oh, wrote him, like, where did you get that quote? I'm, I'm interested in that. That's really kind of cool. And he never got back to him. And so the guy wrote again, like, hey, that mm. quote, I'm sorry, maybe it got lost in spam. Right. But uh, where'd you get that? And he didn't send it back. And he went, again, where did it come from? And, and the guy wrote back saying, thing. you know what? I'm going to have to check it out. I'll get back to you, the author. Right. And the guy went, okay, great. Never got back to him. Did it again. Did it again. Finally, the guy went, okay, I lied. He was, this, this author, Jonathan Runa, was a major guy at Wired or The New Yorker. Right. right. And, and he got fired from The New Yorker. The book was taken off the shelves. It's like, dude. You don't make up a Dylan quote. And he could have easily just said, the Bob Dylan in my head, or my <laughs> fictional version of Bob Dylan would say something like this. Or you could say, any of Bob Dylan's songs can be a novel. Yes. You know, um, there's a line, there's that, uh, I think it's Idiot Wind. Someone's got an in for me, uh, they're planning stories in the press, whoever it is, I wish they'd cut it out quick, but when they will, I can only guess. They, they say I shot a man named Gray and took his wife to Italy. She inherited a million bucks, and when she died, it came to me. I can't help it if I'm lucky. So you go, <laughs> beginning of a novel. Right. Absolutely. And visionary compared to, because Idiot Wind is, I know he's talking about the press at the time, but it really fits social media. Like almost everything in that song kind of <laughs> predicts the social media is going to be. I got to go is. through that again because, yeah, someone's got an in for me. They're planning stories in the press. Whoever it is, nobody knows where right. any of this information right. comes from. Whoever it is, I wish they'd cut it out quick. Right. But when they will, I can only guess. People saying that I've murdered somebody, then I inherit this money. Exactly. You know, ooh. I didn't hear it. And it went blown around like all the city it went. Exactly. Yes. And that song is so good. And, and so many of his songs are really good. And then after a while you go, okay, I'm kind of like, I'm right. over that. I'm over that. How often? Oh, my God. John. My, my favorite is uh, album of his is Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah. Oh, it's a great, the whole, it's great. Yeah. Or, uh, uh, not, it, but, uh, blood, blood on the tracks. tracks. Yes. Tangle up in blue. Yes. But it's got, but it's got idiot That's, wind in it. Yeah. It's, got, it's got all. Blood on the tracks is my favorite Bob Dylan. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're gonna make me lonesome when you go. Isn't that on that? Yes. Um, uh, yeah. So many of those songs. And and when you, I do not knock that guy for fucking anything. Whatever he wants to do, let him fucking do it. You know, let him do it. Let Picasso do it. Let all right. these artists do whatever the fuck they want to do, and let him do it. And, it, and that's one of the things that I learned from Dell in the three years that I studied with him. And each year I studied with him, it was like a different period of Dell. And the, some of the things I learned from Dell, I always say, like, from Dell, I learned how to be an improv artist. From Martin DeMott, I learned how to be an improv human. Mm -hmm. You know? and right. for, Yeah. And then uh, uh, with, with Dell, it was the first adult I'd ever run across that was still learning. Right. That hadn't said, I got it, I'm done. He just kept learning, and then seeing as many different phases and stages there was Dell, I always say he was the Picasso of this work. Be, not that there's not other master artists, but he was the Picasso because he kept changing. He wasn't like an R.C. Gorman figure who was this uh, famous painter in New Mexico who essentially just kept making the same painting over and over. Dell was always making something new, and that's also part of what inspired me to go, oh, my relationship with this work doesn't have to stop, doesn't have to stay where it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And 
I love the way Dell always would learn something else outside of it and then tie it back in. Oh my God. And that inspired me because I teach a drop-in class in LA. And my drop-in class is essentially, what is it that I've learned this week? Now, it's not what is it that I learned in theater this week. Mm -hmm. It's what is it that I learned this week. Oh, this woman was in her car and she was kind of, she was uh, doing this mindless thing with her hair. And it was a private moment. And I thought, private moments. Let's do it. Let's do the next workshop that I do is going to be about private moments. Nice. Take those private moments. Let's look at those private moments. Somebody enters into a private moment. Nice. So Dell would say, "This week I learned Paisley. We're going to be doing Paisley." And you go, "Whatever the fuck you want to do." Right. And another thing about that is that we would sit in Dell's class and we'd go, "Don't know what he's going to do." If somebody sat with us, they'd go, "What kind of fucking class is this?" Right. But you go, that's it. And I had no idea what I was getting into. When I had no, I did not know who Dell was. Right. I came off a of Geese Theater Company with, you know, oh, yeah. with Sean Landry, Sean Landry and, and, and dealing with and, prisons. And all. Yeah, we yeah, did yeah. all that. Yeah. And I came off of that in 1982, 83, something like that. And I went right over to Improv Olympic and I told it, talked to this woman named Sharna. I can't remember how I connected. And Sharna went, oh, you've done that already. Go into Dell's class. Like, okay, who's this guy? Great. I'm just showing up. Yeah. So I didn't come in there thinking I needed a guru or had a guru. I know right. there are a lot of people that do. Right. I have no need for that. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of the reason why training centers have popped up and become so cemented in their own way. Yes. Because instead of a specific person, here's this process. Right. And this process will get you off the mountain. And again, that's to me where most of the people get in fights is when they're halfway up because you get fundamentalists of certain schools. Right. Because they only see what it is that they're learning they haven't seen the larger picture yet. I think the commodification of improvisation always stops. The, I mean, the, moment, the moment that somebody goes, because people say, you should open a school. They tell me, you should open a school because we all want to take what it is that you've done and go to the next step. And I think the moment that I open a school, now this could be a, an excuse, and perhaps one day I will, but the moment I open a school, everything becomes commodified. Everything sure. becomes sealed into this sure. thing, and then it becomes... And also, rough. you become the, the end product. We yes. have to go through three other people to get to you. Yes, that's so instead what, of getting more of you and getting more Dave Rosowski, you're actually getting less because you're getting the other steps before we finally get to Dave. It'd be like, well, in order to keep the school going, Dave, we need to make you the third level, the fifth level. That's what happened. I'm sure that's what's happening. Or I, I, you know, at the annoyance, I don't really know that to be true, but I would imagine that to be true where people are going, I'm going to study with Mick. Right. And the great thing about when we were taking classes at I.O., when did you start? Uh, I was actually... Pre IO, with the times I studied with Dell, back at Cross Currents, and then the last time I studied with him is when he was incorporating witchcraft into and creating the development of the invocation. Right. But prior yeah. to that, I'd studied with him uh, during his time period when he was doing a lot of uh, group work and development of group mind, and mm -hmm. that was when he actually brought in a group psychologist to co-teach the workshops with him, and that's when I learned about Carl Jung and collective unconsciousness, right. because Dell right. was incorporating in that. And the first time I ever studied with Dell was back when he was still on the tail end of his Second City days. So, so at and Second that's when City, I learned the Herald and about patterns. How old are you? Uh, I am fifty-four. Okay, so you're you're younger than me. So you really started. Well, you started. I started when I was twenty. Yeah, uh, when I was twenty, I was still at college. Uh, you're, where are you I from? Quit, I'm from here. Right. I quit college because of st studying with this stuff. I was like a liberal arts major. Where? Uh, at Triton College mm -hmm. on the suburbs. Sure. And I, it was an interdisciplinary program studying the same subject from five points of view, which is really good training for theater. Right. Which is right. really good training for life. Right. And then we were supposed to create an internship, and my internship 
uh, allowed me to start putting together an improv group, but only after I took class at Second City. And then as that all put together, I was like, we did a show. We did a show at the college filled with 126 people. Everyone in the group I'd put together, I took photos of the group, set up the set, and the show went great. And a couple of my Second City classmates were there. And I remember standing on that stage and all of a sudden going, bang, this is it. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Got it. And then from that point on, it was just a more matter of how. And it was actually cheaper to quit college and study with Paul Sills and David Shepard and Bern Piven and Sheldon Patinkin and Dell and Don DiPolo right. and Michael Gellman and all the workshops. It was cheaper to take all that. So I studied for essentially five years. I look at that time period as like getting a bachelor's in improvisation. Sure. In terms, you know, but it was more like an apprenticeship. And then, you know, studying with Dell. Every time I studied with him, he was in a different phase. And so I learned different things from him. Yeah. And, uh, and real quickly, because I'm sure you'll appreciate this. I say, Dell was magic. Martin was magical. I, that man, Martin DeMott, um, I, I never called him Marty, ever. Right. Martin DeMott changed my life on so many levels but so did these other people and people right. listening aren't going to know who these people are but but for the most part don DePola told me he said if there's a problem there's a solution i was like ah, that's fucking awesome yep and martin said we can make this work and let's just make this work and uh and gelman said um Gell gelman's thing was be here now be right. here right now right. be here now yeah um dell's thing was learn as much as you can about everything that you can and bring it in right. now i think it's really interesting that of all those people that we just mentioned <laughs> obviously the common denominator is they're all men and how shit has changed now but i don't know that there are iconic i'm gonna be careful here jill's jill bernard would be close to an iconic woman certainly up in minneapolis yes uh, and then the impact she's had around there uh, clearly susan messing He's right. got that now. But Rachel Mason's developing it. Yes. Cara D. Francisco's developing it. Yes. Yes. And I want those people to go to yes. fucking yeah. move up. But right. they can only move up if they keep doing what it is they're, they're doing. Yeah. I think that those people that we, those men that we just mentioned, had the venue of Second City. Yes. To pull it up. So I think it's, it, you know, Susan doesn't give a shit. She just fucking, she's just doing what it is that she's doing. Yeah. And she just doesn't give a shit. I think Rachel is, you know, Rachel always seems like, uh, what I love about Rachel is she seems like a kid and she's mischievous and she's all that totally. shit. I fucking yes. love that about her. And I love playing with her so much. And I look at that and I think she's young and all these people, where the fuck are they going to go? But I, I'm looking forward to the time where that, because when you were studying, when I was studying, women were, I think I mentioned this before, women were, uh, who was I just talking to about this? Uh, yesterday, women were, uh, oh, Bill Russell. Uh, you know Bill. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Bill Russell, who was one of the first people, people on uh, uh, Barron's Barracudas, the first house team. Right. So uh, all these, uh, when, when we were first starting out, women were nurses and mothers and nuns right. and teachers and now if somebody says oh the police are coming and a woman comes in you don't go lady cop right you know you don't go women judge yeah you know like that all that shit is changing and it's changing i think quickly i hope so because to just have 50 percent of the population represented limits the fifth you know i heard somebody on the radio say we need more diversity i think uh the guy who's who's got his own radio show, who uh, Edward R. Murrow? 
Uh, he was in Spinal Tap. Uh, his, uh, Christopher Guest? No. Harry Shearer? Yes, Harry Shearer said, we need more diversity in the boardroom so that we get a more diversity of ideas so that when crisis hits, we don't just have the same three answers or the same two answers. Yes. And the more diversity we have in the boardroom, in government, in life, and for me, in an improvisation, the more we can do. Because, you know, if Martin was right that improv is about possibilities, then if the more diversity we have of age, life experience, culture, racial background, religious background, beliefs, the more we'll be able to do all kinds of things together on stage. It's so, uh, I just, I was just asked to do a show in a state that isn't this one. Oh, I'm in, uh, by the way, I'm in Chicago. Illinois. And, <laughs> uh, and uh, I was asked to do a, sh to a show in a state that was a southern state. I'm not going to say the name, but Barry Goldwater came from there. And, uh, <laughs> and they asked me to do, <laughs> and they asked me to do a, uh, a family-friendly show. And I went, there's no fucking way I'm going to do a family-friendly show. I'm not going to do it. I'm right. not going to do it. Right. I'm not interested in doing it because a family-friendly show says that there are ideas that I can't expand upon. Right. There's a governor that I'm putting upon myself right. that says I can only go to this certain level. Now, um, I know for me, I could go anywhere I could go. Uh, normally, I do get to a certain level, but I am not going to put that governor upon my energy. Right. And I thought, what would I would thought? This is where I would thought. What would Robin Williams do? Would Robin Williams do a PC show? Could he do one? A PG show? Could he do one? I feel like I'm not interested in that. I'm just right. not interested in that. And here's another right. thing: fuck you with your family-friendly <laughs> show. I always feel it's weird about the phrase "family-friendly." Because if you weren't fucking in the first place, you wouldn't have had a family. <laughs> if you were right, if you weren't friendly fucking in the first right. place, you wouldn't have a family. Right, 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 right. And 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 I did a show where I did a show somewhere. I forgot where it was. Uh, maybe it was Arizona. Maybe it was Arizona. We'll just say Arizona for the first time. All right, Arizona. Um, maybe in Arizona. And um, uh, a, I had no idea that it was a family show and he said i was teaching his, his troop and he goes i just want to tell you you're the first guy that says the the uh, the f word in my uh in my uh, school and i went really the first one the first one how long have you been open four years four years and i'm the first one how does that happen i don't get i don't get anything that tells me to lower my uh uh level of intelligence right or to stop, to stave off that next step of, of um, the story's evolution. Right. Especially if you're being in the moment. Because if you start going, well, I can't go into that moment. That then, takes you out of the moment, in yeah. that moment. Then you're no longer in the moment. You're not connected. That's the fucking thing about the moment. The moment, the moment does not demand your attention all the time. Because if it, if you're demand, if you're if you're giving the moment the moment, if you're giving your moment the moment the attention that it demands in that moment, I don't think you're in the moment. What I think that you're doing is giving the moment the attention, but that doesn't give the moment the attention. The only thing that gives the moment the attention is awareness of the moment. Which is going back to what you're talking about, the celebration. Yes. The celebration of the moment and the celebration of what's going on, which is different than being playful. Part of what I liked about your word of celebration is that it allows for a whole different level of engagement than sometimes just play. And it sounds even more active in its own way than play. Because celebration is an active experience that involves a lot of different things. You don't just celebrate and go, woo, because you can play quietly, but you can't celebrate quietly. 
Right. A lot of the a lot of the celebration also is, and because I I see people in scenes like cracking up or corpsing or whatever, and see people corpsing, and I go, celebrate on the inside. Mm, nice. Because that's what you do. Celebrate on the inside. You nice. can be joyous on the inside, but your outside needs to show us something else. Right. Your partner is not at this point wanting you to go, oh, that was a funny line that you just said. Right. Your partner at this moment needs for you to keep doing what it is that you're doing so he can keep doing what it is that he's doing so you can keep doing what it is that you're doing because that's making him do what it is that he's doing. Right. Uh, but there also is that celebration when I'm working with Carrie or Rachel Hamilton or Rachel Mason, any of the Rachels, um, where you're looking at those women and you're going, and I'm thinking, oh, she's so fucking good. Susan Messing, you know, she's always so good. She's so good that you go, I cannot believe it. And on the inside, there's that Yiddish word, kvel, where you're kvel and you're going, oh, my God, I just adore you so much. You know, it's a grandmother looking at their grandson playing <laughs> at hockey practice or whatever. Right. And that's kvelling and celebrating your partner's wonderful uh, move. Right. And it goes back to the, the idea of collaboration, where it's whatever it is that you're going to say, I, I'm not, my first instinct is not to go, no, oh, no, yeah, well, yeah, you're Muslim. Of course you're going to fucking think that. Is to go, <laughs> oh, I've never really had a, I've never really, I had, um, <laughs> this is going to sound so fucking weird. Uh, the other day, I'll say it, I had a friend over. And she was going through some hard times and we were sitting on my couch and her foot landed over by me and I was rubbing her foot and she's an African-American woman and I was rubbing her foot and I was looking at that thinking, this is the first time I've ever rubbed an African-American's foot. If you've not done it before, it would be the, how could it not be the first? If it's the first, it's the first. Exactly. And I'm looking at it going, I'm celebrating that moment of like, look yes. at my skin and her skin right. and in that moment going, oh my God, that's just so fucking different. And if you were five years old, you just would experience it. Yes. You wouldn't have had that. It just would be like, oh, this is what this feels like. This is you. This is me. This is this. Or to, for a five-year-old to go, that person's skin is different than my skin. Yes. Look at that Yahoo. Right. Yes. And, and, and. <laughs> It's, it's that idea of looking at things with the child, childlike vision, right. the vision of the childlike vision, the vision of the newly freed or the vision of uh, uh, the foreigner in a new land, looking at all those things. And when we reach the scene, when we're hitting the scene, we can't, this can't be fucking de rigueur. You know what I mean? <laughs> this has to be, this moment has fucking right. never happened before. Right. Because it hasn't. It hasn't. Even if you're still playing a butler and a servant. This still hasn't happened before. Right. Or a butler and his boss, whatever. It still hasn't happened before. And if you think that it's happened before, you're not paying attention. Yeah. If you're in the middle of going, oh, this old thing? If you're like, oh, this move again. Right. Oh, of course he's going to go around and go around. But then, no, it's never happened before. And Because and, it's not a play. We're not doing this four times a week. Even if it is a play. It should still be new every time. For me, I feel like when I was when I was on the main stage and you do a show eight times a week for whatever, four or five months, right. you've got to make that thing. You've got, to, you've got yeah. to embrace that, which is different. You've got to look at that moment that right. is different. He moved over here. He doesn't normally move subtle over things, there. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Or to stop saying that something's subtle because there is no subtle. There is either the thing that you're doing or there's something new. One of my favorite plays I ever was in was called Wiley and the Hairy Man. I played the Hairy Man. And the director gave me permission to be able to change every single time as long as I didn't screw up any of the lighting cues mm -hmm. or the sound cues. Mm -hmm. But I had freedom within that each show to take different objectives, take different slants of where I was coming from. Mm -hmm. Especially because my character, the Hairy Man, was supposed to be wild and unpredictable and scary and funny. 
So my entrances each time came from different places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sometimes I come in and be really friendly. Other times I come in and be terrifying. So the actor never knew what I was going to do. The lines were always the same. The lights, you know, like if it came time for a lighting change to happen, I was always where it needed to be so right. that could happen. Right. But otherwise, it was like almost like a free jazz approach. And then the kid, the actor who was playing the kid could never plan his defenses of like, I'm not going to be vulnerable to this moment. Because, and then once all the other actors realized that this is what the director wanted, mm -hmm. then they all joined in and, and followed my suit. Because at first they reacted like, whoa, what, why is this guy doing it differently every time? Right. Even in rehearsal. Until the director said, and it's the first time I ever really felt like that marriage between a script and improvisation. And it felt like every show was really just so alive and vibrant. Right. Because then every response by everybody meant something different because it was new to that time. Yes. Yes. And to have that, and, and also the idea of, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. That's such a good motivation for everything, because at that moment, you are aware of everything. I knew that by the end of the show, my character was going to lose, but I didn't know how he's going to lose that time. Right. Right. And Each if time. you don't. Yeah. And if you don't know how he's going to lose that time, you also don't know what the emotional content of that is going to be. Yes. So in that moment, everybody in that moment is in that moment. And you and so I always look at this. I, I, I ask students uh, this. Why is it that you're doing this now? It's not obviously for money or for fame or for uh, for renown. But why is it that you're doing this now? I do this because for the same reason that I used to smoke pot all the time is I, I'm feeling this. And at the end of this experience, I'm going to feel this. Right. And then I went, okay, good. So what is it that I'm looking for? I'm looking for the emotional epiphany, the revelation, the transformation, the turn. It's going to come. And when it comes, I'm going to celebrate it. Right. Because yes. I think that a lot of people are saying, okay. And in that moment, I'm, I am aware of the, uh, the process. Yes. Or as Michael says, the process. <laughs> I'm going to yes and you off of that by uh, saying... There was once upon a time in my life where all of a sudden I reached a huge sticking point, not only artistically, but also per personally. And I was, you know, I've been in recovery for 24 years because I come from an alcoholic family and I've had different therapists than I worked. But I love it about improvisation. It gave me a language other than the enmeshment of the of my family that I grew up with. And it taught me that playing really is an important, lively force. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things came out of it. But yes, and doesn't always help you off stage because off stage has consequences that on stage improv can't always protect you from. So at one point I had a therapist say to me, could you give up theater if it meant being happy? And that was such a whale of a question. I kind of stopped for like two years because I had to refigure everything out. Like how can I do theater? Because some of my motivations for doing it were wrong. I realized that in some ways I was looking for the audience to be my father replacement. Because I grew up without my dad, and I saw him one day a year, and he's a professional performer. So for a long time, and the audience wasn't asking for that. They were just buying tickets to see a show. But for me, their approval or not approval meant I was a good boy, good son, whatever, all that stuff. And I'm like, okay, so if I'm not performing or creating for that reason, why am I performing and creating? What's my real reason for it? Because I realized after a while, I don't want to give it up. I love creating. Creating theater is my bliss. Right. And so my answer for me was that I, the metaphor I call is like climbing a mountain in public. To me, now when I perform, it's climbing a mountain in the public. My primary relationship is with the artistic, the experience, the moment, and that's the mountain. And it just so happens there's like the audience is like this corporate people that have hired a Sherpa guide to take them up the mountain. 
Right. They're there, but that, if I stop paying attention to the mountain, I'm going to fall off the mountain. So my primary attention has to be my relationship with the art and the experience. The second relationship is with everyone I'm playing with because that's the team mm -hmm. that we're climbing up the mountain together. Mm -hmm. But it, but we got to pay attention to the mountain first, mm -hmm. and that's the art. And it's similar to like how friends of mine who are painters, mm -hmm. their relationship is with the canvas. Musicians is with the instrument. With theater people, our relationship is with each other. And But the ongoing process of constantly working within theater and with improvisation is this relationship with the art itself. Mm -hmm. Now when I perform, the audience comes for the ride, but that's not why I'm doing it. Right. I'm doing it to climb that mountain. And if I don't want to climb that mountain, I shouldn't be on the mountain in the first place. <laughs> right. But if I want to climb that mountain, then whether or not there's two people there or 300 people there, it's the mountain that matters the most because that's where the moment is. And then I'm able to do it and I'm able to do it healthy. And then I have the proper relationship with the audience. I have the right size relationship with my fellow climbers and with myself. And then when it's done, I can let it go and not still be like mainlining that approval seeking thing, you know, like that feels like fame for a second, as opposed to no, that I'm a theater artist and this is, this is what I climb and this is what I do. Mm -hmm. So I definitely get what you're saying because that fits with uh, my experience. It's very interesting that uh, everything that you said there because I feel like what, what you're saying in that when you're looking at the audience for approval, it's the same thing that people do when they look for the, uh, to the audience for approval. <laughs> you don't look at the audience for approval of a father figure. Yeah. Other people are looking at the audience for approval of approval. Yeah. Straight Whatever approval. Right. Whatever so both of those things, the approval of the audience to, to, uh, to assure you that, the, that you're doing the right thing, uh, the approval of the audience as father to assure you that you're doing the right thing and that you're a good boy and that daddy loves you. Or like, some sort of external validation, whatever it is you need validated. Clearly. So both of those things are, they're ego oriented. Ego yes. being not the Eckhart Tolle, I, I'm right. ego being the Eckhart Tollean ego, right. not the Freudian ego. So right. at that moment, what you're saying is it's not about the ego. And anybody who says, you know what, I am going to go to, I've got to get into the Steppenwolf program. I've got to get into DAL. I've got to get into Harvard. You're going, you know what, baby? That's the end of the thing. You're right. not looking at the process that goes through and it. If I don't have it by the age of 26, I'm failing. Oh, my and God. If I'm not done by 30, then I'm out of this business. How many people, I want to go, really, five-year plan? Go fuck yourself with your five-year plan. <laughs> you know, that's one thing. Another thing is, I, what can I do? Because I really, oh, there's one guy here who said, uh, I've, been in, I've been in Chicago for five years, and uh, I didn't get into Second City. I, you know, I had trouble in going in I.O. I, all that I learned was I learned how to play the guitar, and, and that's all I learned. <laughs> but you know how to play guitar. That's the fuck, what the fuck I fucking yeah. said is you learn to play the guitar. How did that work out? Right? You learn how to deal with people. You, you learn. As long as your hands don't get arthritic, you can play the guitar for the rest of your life. Here's another thing that you learned. Chicago's not for you. So with that, what does that do? You finished in Chicago. Good for you. You're done. Now where are you going to go? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> there's a lot of cities in this country. Oh, my there's God. But there's also no matter where you go, there you are. Right. So you've got to go where it is. You've got to be where it is that you're going. You've right. got to be where it is that you're going. Right. You know, it's such an interesting thing to say. But wherever it is that you are, you're bringing you with you. And boy, I mentioned a lot in, in the past few podcasts. I just broke up with a woman who just had so much baggage that every time anything happened, she opened up this fucking baggage. And I'm like, where did that come from? Because uh, it, it's just, it's, and she, some of this shit isn't even her baggage. <laughs> One of my favorite sayings in recovery is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Uh huh. What does that mean? It means if somebody is freaking out, 
larger than like obviously oh, hysterical. if you see a child break you know get run over by a car in front of us hysteria is a natural response got it but if it's just like something that triggered something else and they respond hysterically it's because of something of their history got it it's you know just like a, a, a phrase i came up with that i that i really like is to me rage is frozen hurt set a fire <laughs> wait hold it Rage, Rage is frozen hurt, uh -huh. set a fire. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Oh, boy. Right? Yeah. So, to me, everybody has baggage. The question is, does your baggage come with wheels? Everybody has landmines in their front of their house. Does yours come with a map? Right. So that right. I know where it is so I don't go walking into it. There's also, uh, like, the baggage that you get, are you t bringing in baggage or are you bringing in a baggage carousel? Right. Are you bringing in this thing that keeps pooping up baggage? <laughs> and is it, like you said, is it all your baggage or have you suddenly become the baggage acclimator? And if you work on yourself, you actually lessen your baggage. Oh, clearly. Because you start clearing stuff out. Right. And the idea of, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, Bill, I'm this way because my mom was a... Uh, a child of the uh, depression. Right. So that's why I act this way. It's like, really? You're opening your grandparents' baggage. Yes. You're bringing your yeah. fucking grandparents' baggage and your mom's baggage and, you and can your say, fucking baggage. This influenced me as a kid, but it doesn't influence me anymore as an adult. It, and I make different choices. Clearly. And here's the thing about the different choices. The and we do it in improvisation all the time, where you reach this point that uh, Chan Mi Tan in, in Search Inside Yourself, this book, he calls it the sacred breath, where somebody cuts you off in traffic and, and later on you tell the story and you go, and I immediately fucking exploded. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it worked. Somebody cut you up in traffic and you're not looking at that breath that you took in right. and at that moment you could have gone, oh, thank God I wasn't hurt or, right. or, or oh boy, uh, that person must have been really in a hurry right. or, or I, I survived right. uh, or, oh, that fucking pisses me off. So yeah. in that moment, you have in that moment determined what it is that you're going to do. Right. What are you going to do with the moment that you have? Because when you take that sacred pause, that right. sacred breath, when right. somebody fucking does something to you, you can't just go rage set it on right. fire you know you go okay hold on a minute hold on a minute and you can make a choice yes you are in charge of the way that you're looking at that i always say the difference between reaction and response is one breath clearly and that's what i try to tell students who i try to do when i'm improvising because reaction goes back to fight flight or freeze our dna as a human species goes back reaction we're either going to freeze we're either going to fight or we're going to run away right but what makes us beyond that, where we reach that intuitive part that allows wisdom to come in, that allows a stronger heart to come in, is one breath. Yep. And, and you've, got to, you've got to know that, that you're going, and this is what I've been teaching lately, is the idea that, the, because it goes back to breath, it's, <laughs> it's somebody enters the scene, and whatever it is that they say, in that moment, they've told you how they want you to breathe. Yes. Jerry, you're late. <laughs> Carla, I love you. Yeah. And the moment that your breath changes at some time during that scene, you've reached the second beat of the scene. Mm -hmm. But you have to be mindful of that. Jerry, you're late. <laughs> what do you mean, you're late? <laughs> I thought it was on time, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to be mindful of. Oh, no. I'm sorry. You get to be mindful of that. Right. And where a lot of people run into problems is they stop breathing. Which is one thing I could gain so much from Martin DeMott because he'd always say, keep breathing. Right. When you stop breathing, you stop moving, boom, of course you're in your head. But you're, you're not really in your head. You're in your judgment. Exactly. Right. You're, yes. Um, you're I not love, in your uh, wisdom. You're in your judgment. Right. Do you know Alexandra Billings, right? Yes. She and I were roommates. 
Oh, then you know her. Yes. So she goes, and I knew breathe. I viewpoints with her. What's that? I know you did viewpoints. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. one, she's one of my mentors. I fucking love it. And she will say this, and you go, she'll go, breathe, angel. Breathe. <laughs> breathe, angel. <laughs> because that's what she'll do. Angel, right. you got to breathe. Angel, you got to breathe. She'll yes. hold on. You go, angel, yeah. you got to breathe. Just yeah. breathe, just breathe. Just yeah. breathe, just breathe, just breathe. And, yeah. Like if anybody's listening right now, take that breath and go, and what happens is it brings you to here. It brings you to here. It's, right. Uh, people, I, like I'm not in recovery, but I have been in therapy. There's for all really, kinds of ways to get but better. But here's the thing. I, I haven't been in recovery, but I've been in therapy for probably everything years. To me, there's so many paths to get better. But I, I also feel like, I feel like all that that's happened. It's, it's, for me, I, I, I have trouble with the word getting better. I have trouble with the word better. Well, I was trying to choose a different word than recovery. Got it. So what I'm saying is, I'm saying, okay, I'm just saying, you you, you, you mentioned that you were in recovery. You yes. called it recovery, yeah. right? I have not been in recovery, but I have been in therapy. And uh, for a long time, it's still in therapy now. One of the things that that is the most wonderful thing about it is to go, here's a moment for me to be, just be. Mm. Here's a moment for me to be free. Here's a moment for, for me to live in the sanctuary. Here's a moment for me to sure. be in this stillness, this quietness, right. this right. oneness. Yeah. This non-judgmentness. My favorite therapist that I ever had, he said to me before, the first time we sat down to have therapy, you know, my first therapy session with him, he said, I can't promise you that I won't hurt you. I will promise that if I do hurt you and you can tell me that I've hurt you, I will do the very best I can to hear it. <laughs> and I was like, that's really like the best promise you can make anybody, whether or not you're improvisers in a duo together, whether or not your roommates, whether or not your lovers, whether or not your just friends, that's if you have children or not, that's the best promise that you can make. We're all going to make mistakes. Right. But I promise that if you were strong enough to tell me that I, I you know, I've hurt you or, or done something that's made a mistake, I will do the best I can to hear it. Right. And that's, uh, uh, so there's a lot of things I've learned from therapy as well. Uh, you know, so to me, like, Life has been a constant, ongoing journey of this mountain and then the next mountain. Mm -hmm. There's so much to keep learning and keep discovering and keep gaining from. Right. And, you know, uh, I think that it's better to be wise than it is to be smart. I agree. And it takes a, there takes a, um, an understanding of the concept of vulnerability and the beauty in vulnerability. The idea that in order for me to hear this and grow, I need to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I need to be open to it. Open. Definitely open. And it goes back to the idea of uh, what Harry Shearer was saying about diversity. To be yes. open to all those different voices right. and not to look at so many. I love uh, Alexandra and Chris Ann's story. Yeah. I love their story. Yeah. Because their story is about what does gender mean and what if you surrender gender, right. you know? Yeah. What does it mean to be gay and what if you surrender that label? Right. What does it mean to, be, to have all those things? And clearly they like, I say they like walk this path of coals of fire to get to where they are in becoming married. Uh, uh, because there were so many reasons for them not to stay together. So many reasons for them over the course of their lives to just go different directions. And, right. And, but they kept returning to each other. And as you, cause you know, the whole story. And, uh, 
Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Alexandra has always been an inspiration. When she first moved in, it was me and Tom Dorfmeister and Alexandra Billings mm -hmm. living below Martin DeMott. Mm -hmm. We were on a reality on, TV. Um, yeah, on the diversity. Yeah, diversity, right. Yeah, that whole building. We were like a reality TV show. That, before he there was he owned that building, didn't he? His sister uh, owned that building, didn't I think she? So. Yeah. 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 And uh, uh, so having her for a roommate for, you know, a couple years, you know, it's one of those things like that was proving that life's about possibilities. Growing up, uh, a straight white boy in the suburbs of Oak Park, the idea of having a uh, pre-op transsexual for a roommate was nothing that ever would have appeared in my 1960s mindset. Right. Nor for her. Right. Yes. Nor for her. Right. Where people, where we look at the world that we live in right now and we go, what? Yeah. And uh, who did I have on the other day? Patrick Bristow, who is a groundling, and uh, somebody else, Sam Pancake, Drew Jogi, um, having these gay men on and say, uh, or Michael Shepard. Do you know Michael Shepard? Yes. Yeah. Michael Shepard. And to have these gay men on and go, well, I'm married. And you go, what? And this happened right, to me the other right. day. Uh, I'm teaching class in Miami, and this woman has this huge wedding ring on, and I'm talking about that moment that I just talked about where the breath comes in, where something mm -hmm. changes and the breath mm -hmm. comes in. And I said, okay, so you are over there, at the, and you're, you're sitting on the couch, and, and uh, the door opens and your husband comes in. And she goes, wife. And I went, uh... it, and I went oh my God, that's the first time that's happened. That's the first time yeah. that's happened. Yeah. And, for, and I went, y'all. This is the first time that's happened. And I went, thank you. And her name is Amy. I was like, thank you, Amy. That's the first time that's happened. And I didn't go, I'm so sorry. I went, I celebrated that moment yeah. saying, look at what, look at the look world at where we, we are. Look at where we are. Yeah. And I think, how come nobody in Louisiana is gay? Or how come nobody in Kansas is gay? Because it's not an issue there. They don't need that. How come nobody in Texas is gay? Isn't right. that weird? Yeah. And you go, you know what? That person, you think that person is going through hell. You don't know what the right. fuck somebody's, you don't know, uh, you, you don't know what someone's hi, uh, hysterical history is. You don't have any idea what that is. Part of what I love about when I've been in multicultural cities like Toronto, New York, London, mm -hmm. is that because everybody gets to be everybody, then everybody has a better shot of finding who their real friends ought to be and be with them. Because then there's less, well, I can't be friends with you, you're black. I can't right. be friends with you, you're Jewish. I can't be friends with you, you're gay. I can't be friends with you because of this and this. And then everybody is more able to find who they ought to be with. And that increases the chance of, because to me, if everybody finds who they ought to be with, then I have more of a chance to find the right people that I ought to be with as well. Because then everybody's finding the right person and you're not finding the wrong person because they're not living the life they ought to be living. Right. You know, it's like if everybody can follow their bliss and can be brave enough to follow their bliss and go after it, then everybody clarifies and then you have more of a shot of everybody being able to be themselves and then everybody has their place on the boat. Right, right, right. Right. And the big thing is the concept of follow your bliss. Now, we live in, we're talking this country where we are very bliss follow able. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, we we're, so. we're not in Somalia. Right. So we're at the point we're at the point where it's like, can you if you most most of us can follow their bliss. The issue here is rather the challenge, not challenge. The challenge here is, do you know what that means? Do you right. know what follow your bliss means? Because and do you know that the, the word sacrifice is not what you think the word sacrifice is? Right. And do you know what you're sacrificing? What does that all mean to you? And even realizing that following your bliss doesn't mean that everything's happy all the time. Right. It just means there's 
a transcendent quality to the experience. Right. And to me, following your bliss is f first you got to find your passion. Right. Then once you found your passion, you put your passion into action. Yeah. And then when you're putting your passion into action, you start achieving bliss, which is that transcendent state of action, passionate action. Passionate action. But it doesn't ever mean that bliss is like you're zoned out. It's not like smoking opium. Right. You're no, no, that's not. No, it. it's, no. In fact, no. you're incredibly engaged with the moment. You're incredibly climbing that mountain. You're not just floating on it. I, uh, again, this relationship that I had, every time I went out of town, this woman would call me and go, why did you walk on that? Like, and I'm, yeah. I'm going, you know what? I don't need that right now. And I'm right. looking at my students saying, that's my bliss. That's what I'm following. These right. people need me right, right now at this moment. All these people need me. And to go, I am keeping focus on that and going, stop with the bees. Why are there wasps right. and bees and there are bees? <laughs> and to look at that. And, and so you said, find your passion. And I think, find your passion, find your passion. Find your passion. Recognize your passion. Yeah. Find your passion. Recognize your passion. Discover your passion. Yes. Realize your passion. But also go Also keep your mind open, your eyes right. open for that passion. Because right. everybody has inherent skills that they're born with. Yes. And it's up to them to find it. What's some of the tragedies with poverty in America is that there are people who have skills that are not able to find those things because they have limited opportunities. But everybody has skills and talents within them. And that definitely means there are people whose passion is to be accountants. I know a couple of accountants who are fucking crazy for numbers. For them, accounting is like speaking another language. I don't get it. I speak rudimentary, just enough to be an executive director of a not-for-profit organization and keep it going. But that's their bliss. And I want them to be blissful accountants right? because right. it can help me. Right. But everybody has their own bliss and it's just up to the challenge of each person's life to find your skills within that and go after that. Even if it means you start out being a boy named Scott and you end up becoming a woman named Alexander Billings. Right, right. Can you be that brave right. to shed to become who you truly are? And not hold back when you get AIDS and live with HIV and right. all that and to go, what the fuck? And, right. and your, the, your best friend says, I'm not, I, you want me to go out with you. I am not a, I'm not a lesbian. And to right. go, listen, what if we take this moment right now and say, there's no such thing as lesbian. Right. There's no just, such thing as gay. There's just this thing called love, and we both right. love each other more together, and we can't love with their apart. We don't work, but to, yeah, so. Yeah, there's yeah. this thing called spirit. Yes. Love, spirit. Yeah. There's this thing called spirit because, again, you look at somebody, okay, Dell, I would never say Dell had anything to do with love. I, maybe he did, but I look at that. He's a, he was a spirit. And yes. what he did was That's he went. he was magic. Yes, exactly. So he was able to take Paisley and turn it into theater <laughs> because that's what, that's what he does. Right. You know, he that was an magic. alchemist. Yeah. I'm yeah. saying it's Paisley is not Paisley. Paisley is spirit. It's yes. energy. Yes. And what does that mean to you? And what right. is it that we're doing? Because I'm looking at your Panda Express drink cup and I'm saying, okay, I'm motivated by that thing. And if I want to look at it going, it's a corporate logo and what the fuck. But sure. I'm going, there's a panda. <laughs> It's a panda on it, you know? And to go, okay, can I get the bliss out of that and not attach it to right. another corporate thing that's yeah, trying to be right, Chinese right, and Asian right, and all that stuff? Right. And go, no, that's not it. Let's stop there. All right. Thank you, sir. You bet. <laughs> Thank you for listening to ADD Comedy. For Dave Rosowski, I'm Ian Foley. For more information on Dave, you can go to his website at www.davidrosowski.com or follow Dave on Twitter at drosowski.